Hey, Simon Gill here from The Street. Uh, welcome, I'm so grateful that you found this video as we talk about some of the issues we're grappling with as a wider society. And it's really important that you know that this message sits as part of a wider series we're calling Origins, where for the first three weeks, we sort of established some biblical foundations that then allowed us to have a three-week conversation around some of these broader issues. If you haven't yet found those first three weeks, I'd really encourage you to go and watch those first before you watch uh, this video. Uh, please know we hope that this video is a blessing to you and we are praying for you. He aha, te mea nui o te ao. He tangata, he tangata, he tangata. If I ask you what is the most important thing in the world, it is people, it is people, it is people. For God so loved the world, this world, and the people of this world, that he gave his one and only son, that which was most precious to him, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. How important are people? Humanity is the pinnacle of creation, the most important thing in God's world. And so as we step into a conversation today about gender and about sexuality, can we never lose sight of this one thing? This is not an issue to talk, just to talk about. This is not a problem to solve. This is about people, real people caught up in a fallen world that God is redeeming. People are important to God. And therefore, they must be important to us. Can we at all times seek to love people? Furthermore, this is not just about people out there. I realize there is a strong voice driving ideology in our government, in our businesses, in our schools, in our communities that is making life increasingly difficult for followers of Jesus. Some of you are contemplating having to leave a career or missing out on a job. Some of you are being canceled by friends. Some of you are grappling with what does it look like and you're worried about your child's education as a result of this ideology, but can we also acknowledge that there are people in our church, in our life groups, in our families who love Jesus and want to follow him, want to honor him while grappling with questions of gender and sexuality. We've called this talk Recognizing Diversity because we have to understand that this is something that affects discipleship within our church community. Our gatherings have to be places where it is safe for every single person to grapple with what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so it's important that this talk today is the beginning of a conversation, the beginning of a journey, not the end of a journey. It's a journey that will involve many conversations that will impact just about every area of our lives and every area of our church. This sermon can't answer every question, but I hope as we begin to build a framework together that we've sort of been doing throughout this whole series and we're continuing today, it will enable us within community, within health conversation to answer these questions together and I therefore want to posture us as a church. 
How can we have these conversations well? What should our church community be like? And what are some of the things that might help us grapple with these questions as a community? I want to suggest three things that affect how we should posture ourselves. And the number, uh, the first thing is that our posture needs to be biblical. Go to Genesis 1. It's familiar from the first couple of weeks of this series. Verse 26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. First and foremost, we have to remember that people are made in the image of God. In week two of this series, we talked about this thing and we we likened being made in the image of God to a statue and we said that the value of a statue is inextricably linked to the worth and value of the one it represents. And so if humanity has been made in the image of God who is infinitely worthy and valuable, then so are we as people made in his image. This is true of every single person. It's true of you. It's true of the person next to you. It's it's true of the person opposed to you. It's true of the person who hates you. It's true of every single person. If you're skeptical today and and you disagree with everything else I say, maybe this introduction you've hated, can you go away with this one thing? You're so valuable to God. He's made you in his image. Second thing is that um, in terms of um, being biblical is this idea um, that comes out of Genesis 2.7. We didn't get a chance to look at it in the first couple of weeks, but let me look at it now. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And he became a living being, a living being. It's sometimes translated as living soul. Now, this doesn't mean you've got some sort of weird spirit rattling around in your body that's disconnected from you. That's Gnosticism. We don't want to go there. In the original language, soul refers to the whole person. That God has created all of you as one, the immaterial and the material, the visible and the invisible. It means God has created us as integrated and complex being. And it can be hard to work out sometimes where the immaterial starts in the beginning and 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 the material ends. You are one whole person created in the image of God. If you go back to verse 27 that we looked at uh, previously, it says that we've been made male and female in the image of God, equal in value, equal in dignity, but both made in the image of God, but with objective differences between men and women such that we are designed to correspond to one another. I'm told that just about every single cell in your body is stamped with that identity of being either male or female. God's creation of us as, as male and female is, is really tightly tied in the scriptures to this call that God has for us to, to spread out, to increase in number, to fill the earth. It has to do, um, it's tied really tightly to childbearing. 
What it means is that, that humanity couldn't carry out the call of God to fill the earth, to multiply with, uh, just as a man or just as a woman. We needed that diversity of biological sex to fulfill God's call for us. It means God is the creator of biological sex. It's not something we choose. It's not something that's assigned but rather an intrinsic part of how God has made you to bear his image in the world. One of the things that's tightly tied then to uh, biological sex is this idea of marriage, Genesis 2.24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and the two become one flesh. If God created biological sex, he also created the marriage relationship. Sex isn't something dirty or illicit or shameful, but part of the good world that God created And there's this incredible depth of intimacy and vulnerability that means sex, that God has designed for sex to be experienced within the confines, the boundaries of a marriage, a lifelong commitment between a man and a woman. Rather than trying to work out all the things that we could define as sexually sinful, God says, I want to introduce you to the pattern that I've designed you for a lifelong relationship between a man and a woman. And what falls outside of that in terms of sexual expression is inherently wrong. And this is consistent throughout the Bible. This isn't just Genesis. It's consistent throughout the Bible. It's when Jesus is asked a question about divorce, rather than sort of getting drawn into a conversation about divorce, this is what he says. He says, haven't you read? (laughs) He replied that at the beginning, the Creator made the male and female And then he says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. When he's asked a question about what happens when things sort of don't follow God's pattern, what Jesus does, he says, let me take you back to God's pattern and affirm for you Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 as core pillars of human sexuality. And if Jesus affirms it, then I believe we should too. We should do as well. But it didn't stay like that for long. We looked at the fall last week in Genesis 3. Things didn't stay in line with God's pattern. Rather than do things God's ways, we chose to do things our own way. And the created order gets fractured. Our relationship with God gets fractured. Our relationship with one another, our relationship with the wider creation, and and perhaps most destructively of all, our relationship with ourselves gets fractured. And if our relationship with others gets fractured, it makes sense that our sexual attraction and desire would also become distorted as well. We would expect that married people would still be attracted to people outside of their marriage and and be tempted to go there. We would expect that people would want to try and step out of God's design for marriage and express sexuality in all sorts of ways outside of that. And we would also expect that some of us would be attracted to people of the same sex and want to live that out. I think it's important for us to see just how widespread this is. Matthew 5, 28, Jesus is talking to some guides and he says this, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. Jesus says that what we do actively sexually actually arises from our hearts. And in one sentence, Jesus condemns 
every single human being as someone who has sinned sexually. This isn't their issue. This is all of our issue. And if this fall also means a sort of fractured relationship with ourselves, then for some of you, you know, for some of you maybe have been racked with like chronic pain for longer than you can remember. For some of you, you've been plagued by mental illness. For some of you, maybe you've experienced anorexia. When no matter how many times people tell you, you are not underweight, you just can't stop seeing and withholding food. You can't stop seeing yourself as overweight and withholding food from yourself. There's this brokenness in all of us that's expressed in different ways. We could go on, couldn't we? When we understand that we were created as integrated complexities, and that sin has created this brokenness in our relationship with ourselves, like a disconnect between the material and the immaterial, it makes sense that some people would feel a sense of distress and confusion and conflict with their biological sex or with the sex-based stereotypes that are perpetuated in our culture. And the term we use for this is gender dysphoria. And I want to validate that this sense of distress and confusion and conflict is a very real experience for some people. However, I also don't want to endorse that embracing that as the real you is going to be life-giving for you because it does not get you closer to the way God created us to be as male and female. We're created as embodied people, which means God did not put you in the wrong body. We're created as sexed people, meaning that being male and female is an intrinsic part of the role God has for you to play in bearing his image in his world. And it's into this world of sin and brokenness and confusion that Jesus steps. And he lives the life that we should have lived and he died the death that we deserved and he rose again, proving that sin could be forgiven and death had been defeated and could be overcome. And when we believe in Jesus, we not only receive his forgiveness, but we receive the spirit of God, the very power and presence of God in our lives to empower us to live in a brand new way. The, The trajectory of our lives is fundamentally changed. We stand before God righteous with the righteousness of Jesus and we're on a journey of being made more and more like Jesus but please don't make the mistake of thinking that then suddenly everything in our lives is just fixed automatically overnight and I think this is something that is borne out nicely in in, um, Romans 8 verse 23 says this not only so but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit first fruits of the spirit the presence of the spirit in our lives is evidence of the new era evidence that you've been forgiven okay so we in that space groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship the redemption of our bodies For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. This is talking about people in Christ, people who've been forgiven, people in whom the Spirit resides, and yet they're still groaning, craving for their bodies to be fixed, yearning for Jesus to finish the job that he started. 
And it's fair to say that it's true of all of us, and yet it's true that for me, having spent time talk, uh, praying with people who are riddled with cancer, walking alongside people in chronic pain and mental illness, and talking to people who just grapple and grapple and grapple with same-sex attraction, from my perspective, I think it's really clear that for some of us, this inward groaning is way more acute. It's, I think it's what Wesley Hill, um, author of a book called Washed and Waiting, calls Washed and Waiting. We know we're forgiven. We know we're headed for eternity with Christ, and yet we're waiting, still riddled and racked with the effects of temptation and brokenness in our lives. And so if these things are true, then we can't pretend that if we believe in Jesus, every single issue in our life is just going to be um, resolved immediately. It means we can't just assume that you can pray the gay away. And we can't assume that if somebody would just repent, just pray harder, then their gender dysphoria would just vanish. It just doesn't work like that. All of us have things that just won't be resolved until Jesus returns. And so the questions for us become, what does it look like for somebody to follow Jesus, even if they continue to experience same-sex attraction? What does it mean to follow Jesus as a man or as a woman when I continue to experience distress with my biological sex? And what sort of church community do we need to be to help that happen? If you're someone who is seeking to follow Jesus and already trying to grapple with questions of sex and sexuality, I want you to hear that you are welcome. You're so welcome in this church community as you seek to answer those questions. I would hate to think that you would feel the need to leave our church community to go somewhere else to try and answer those questions and figure that out. We want to be a loving and a non-judgmental community. And we want to give you the space and the grace to work through what obedience to Christ looks like. And so... I promised you some basic biblical foundations, but when you apply basic Bible into the context of complex humanity, that's what you get with basic Bibles. That's our first posture, to be biblical. The second posture is that we need to be humble. And so the first thing I want to think under humility is open ears. Proverbs 18, 13 says this, to answer before listening, that is folly and shame. We have to be prepared to listen to people's stories. I've never experienced some sort of sex, uh, same-sex attraction. I've never had distress around my biological sex. And so for me to make blanket statements... Just pronouncements about that without listening to people's stories would be so foolish. The very definition of a disciple is a learner. We never stop learning. And so it's important that we listen well and truly seek to understand where somebody is coming from and what their experience is like. Number one, with a humble posture, I think is open ears. Number two, with a, with a humble posture, I think is authenticity. When I first started talking, uh, being asked to talk about um, this topic, I was like, Lord, where do I start? And I felt God say to me, go to the Gospels. And so I just open up Matthew and I'm reading, okay, genealogy, and I keep going, Christmas narrative. Oh, nice, Christmas narrative. And I keep going, and then I come to Jesus' very first words in ministry. Do you know what he says? Repent. 
for the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus announces that the king has arrived. And he's the king of a kingdom that is so great that every single thing in our lives needs to go on the table before Jesus, that we should be willing to give up everything for the sake of the kingdom. Jesus doesn't ask, what is your sin? He doesn't say, is your sin palatable in church or is your sin palatable in your society? He says, repent. That every single one of us needs to put everything in our lives on the table, call it all into the question for the sake of his kingdom. The reason it stops me, stopped me in my tracks is because I had to acknowledge that my anger was no more palatable to God than a man going to bed with a man. And it also stopped me in my tracks because I wonder how many of us have truly responded to that call to repent. I was talking to a follower of Jesus in our church community who continues to wrestle with same-sex attraction. He has come to the conclusion that for him to honor Jesus, he needs to be celibate and single. And he says, for that to happen, there's a whole aspect of my life, Simon, that I need to let die. And it's not just about sex. He told me it's about a hug. It's about a romantic dinner. It's about intimacy. It's about companionship that he feels he will never truly experience. And I see some of the same things in people in our church community who love Jesus and they're single and they're not sleeping around. They're not rushing after marriage with somebody who's not a Christian. They are doing their best to honor Jesus in their singleness. Do you know what it is like to have a part of you that you feel like you have got to let die for the sake of following Jesus? Can I challenge you? And say, if you don't know what that feels like, I wonder if it's actually Jesus you've chosen to follow. We have to be authentic as followers of Jesus and be honest about our own sin while we also help people with their sin as well in community. And I think in this humble posture, I just wonder if for us as followers of Jesus and churches over the years, whether there's some things that we might need to say sorry for. I know I feel I need to. See, for some people, honoring Jesus means singleness and celibacy. And that's a tough step, right, to try and live that out in a world that basically says, if you're not sexually active, you can't truly be fulfilled as a human being. And yet I wonder if it's any easier in the church. I think we've so celebrated marriage and family that we've accidentally made it the pinnacle of discipleship. But if the pioneer of our faith, the most fulfilled and greatest human being ever was a single virgin, it's Jesus, by the way, then singleness has to be something to be celebrated. I'm sorry for the times we've made singleness difficult for people. I'm so sorry. Can we begin to work out what it looks like to honour and support people, whatever their relational status, and help them honour Jesus in that? I also want to say sorry because I wonder if we've perpetuated sex-based stereotypes. 
So it explains stereotypes, so the roles that society expects of somebody depending on their sex. Again, I wonder if we've made life difficult for people. When we think of men's ministry, we think of barbecue, you know, we think of sports, we think of cars and guns. And, and then when it comes to women, we think like craft and baking or something like that. And yet there's nothing in the Bible that says that any of these things are inherently male or female. And I'm sorry if we've made it more difficult for you to live life as, a, as an image bearer of God, as male or female, because we have put unnecessary stereotypes on you. Without even thinking. I also wonder if we need to say sorry, and I think I want to say sorry, because I think as Christians, we've been too easily satisfied with the truth, with the right answer, that as long as we, we've got the right answer, as long as what we believe is true, then that's enough for us. Yet God calls us to be a community of grace and truth. Truth not just being what's wrong, but the full expression of truth, including like that the we're image bearers of God. And grace doesn't mean leniency. Grace, if, if, grace, if the grace of God in our lives is the way God empowers um, us to live in line with truth, and he does that in our lives as a free gift, then can I suggest that our, to being a community of grace means us giving people the free gift of creating an environment within which they can live out God's truth. So my question is, if we're to be a community of grace, how can we create an environment that helps people live out the truth of Scripture? Are we ready to pay the price of what is necessary to help a person who is same-sex attracted follow Jesus? Do we understand the sacrifice that it is for somebody to live out their lives as celibate and single? And we're ready to provide the depth of community that they may need us to be. Finally, I think our posture needs to be like Jesus. Up until now, I've been talking about sort of people in our church who are wrestling with same-sex attraction or an incongruence um, in their feelings with their biological sex, but I think it goes wider as that, than that as well. How do we posture ourselves in the wider world? And I think it's really helpful here to look at Jesus. He spent so much time with people whose lives did not match up to the religious standards of the day that he was accused of being a friend of sinners. In John 4, he goes after a woman at the well who's hiding from community because of what she's up to. She is so marginalized and Jesus goes and hangs out with her when a woman in adultery, caught in adultery gets tossed before Jesus and sits there rightly condemned. Jesus stoops to her level and ministers where she is at, defended her against her accusers and invited her to live in a brand new way. Time and time again, Jesus stepped into other people's worlds for their sake, to befriend and to help. And I know that some of you Living in line with your biblical convictions is leading you to, to forms of persecution. You know, maybe it's being excluded from a job. Maybe it's being cancelled by a friend. 
Can I suggest that even here, our posture needs to be like Jesus. People may well hate us, but can we keep in mind people hated him first? And so where we're hated, can we love? When people speak words of harm against us, can we pray for them? And can we keep stepping across the line of divide? in pursuit of reconciliation, knowing that when we believe in Jesus, it doesn't necessarily mean that everyone's going to love you. Some people will, will be like, this is the stench of death, I just can't be around you. But when you live life following Jesus, for some people, you'll be the aroma of life, the fragrance of Jesus they've been longing for their whole lives. So we think about this posture of Jesus Think about what it ultimately looks like when all of us were sinful and separated from him. He left heaven itself and came to earth and died a death that we deserved. How much greater expression could there be of somebody stepping across the line for someone else's sake? Can we be a church that loves the world like our Savior has loved us? Can I pray for us? Oh, Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your word. Thank you that you've lavished grace upon grace upon grace to us. We acknowledge that this is not a message that answers every question. But God, I pray that you'd help us to adopt a posture that is biblical, that is humble, and that is like Jesus. And would you lavish us with your grace today to help us live this out? and to be a community that enables other people to live that out too. We love you so much. We thank you for this time. Amen.